Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Galatians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 4 through 7 this morning in our second Sunday in Advent. We're taking the season of Advent this year. Uh, That's the first season in the church calendar, even though it sort of lines up with the end of the regular calendar. Um, It's the first season in the church calendar. We're taking it's the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas, and we're talking about the incarnation. Um, The incarnation, when God became flesh, when the Son of God came into the world and became a human, Jesus. And it's the most important reality in the history of the whole universe, the incarnation. When God came to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, to be known by us, even as one of us. It's the most important reality. So Advent is a time when we remember the incarnation. We remember Jesus himself as the great fulfillment of all good longings, as the song goes that the choir sang this morning, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, in the birth of our Savior, in the incarnation. What does that mean? That Jesus is the fulfillment of all good longings, that our hopes and fears are met in the incarnation of the Son of God. We're we're asking the basic investigative questions, right, of this great mystery. Last week we asked who, who is the incarnate one, who is Jesus? He's the true God behind everything, and he's the one true human being. And so if you want to know who God is, you look at him. If you want to know who humanity is supposed to be, you look at Jesus, right? Uh, Today we're asking the question, what? What happened when he came? What happened in the incarnation? What essentially did God do when he became a human being? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would help us. We always need your help when we want to consider your word, when we want to be receptive to it and be changed by it. It cannot happen apart from your work and apart from your spirit. So we pray for that help now in Jesus' name. Amen. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, daddy issues, everybody's heard that phrase, right? Daddy issues, it's a common theme in the world today. It's common in popular psychology, it's common in sociology, it's common in criminology, common in portrayals of all those things that you see in... um, in cultural stories like literature, film, TV shows, daddy issues, so common that it seems you actually cannot genuinely depict life unless you see daddy issues as a central driving feature in our lives. Uh, You can't just have an unambiguously good hero in the story. You've got to give him daddy issues that shape who he is and, uh, and real human struggles that the audience can relate to and connect to. So maybe it seems like a tired cliche, right? Because uh, we're sort of super saturated by the idea in our culture, the idea of daddy issues. But actually, it's a profound insight. It's a profound insight. The father relationship 
absolutely shapes our lives. The scriptures talk about that very clearly. The father relationship shapes our lives. It's, it's how humans are. Our lives are spent in some sense reacting to who our fathers are, reacting to who we imagine our fathers are, or uh, anticipating their reactions, or trying to earn their approval, trying to get on their good side and have a good relationship with our fathers. It's embedded in us, even if our fathers aren't really in our lives anymore, if if they never were or if they've died. um, This kind of thing, this kind of dynamic is present and true for us. We're striving to attain a good father-child relationship. I realize that might sound like a bit of a a stereotype, right? Uh, You know, the word stereotype actually comes from the printing trade, It's a very appropriate word to use in this case, I think. If you had an original document, we're talking about hundreds of years ago, and they're starting up with the printing presses and stuff like that, the stereotype, if you had an original document that you wanted duplicated in exact copies, then you would take that original document and you'd make a mold from it, in a sense. You'd make a mold that then you would use to make the copies. Um, So in that technical sense... Stereotype refers to an image perpetuated without change. An image perpetuated without change. And that's exactly what you do have in the whole broken human race. An image perpetuated without change. An image handed down from the father to the son, from parents to children. And the image is one of desperate striving to attain something we don't have. That's the image that is perpetuated without change in the broken human race. Desperate striving to attain something that we don't have. We're trying to get love. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to please a father who is probably, basically, we're pretty sure, just unhappy with us. It's almost indelibly imprinted on us, almost genetically encoded. Maybe it actually is. I don't know. And it really is the place... We're exactly where we've all gone wrong because it all stems from the idea, whether it's explicit for us, whether we say this out loud or whether it's just still unconscious, it all stems from the idea that God basically doesn't like us, that he'd rather not have anything to do with us, and we need to do whatever it takes to get love from him, to be on his good side, to have a good relationship, a good father-child relationship. But it stems from the idea that God doesn't actually love us, but things won't be right until we get that, until we get divine father love. So our lives, again, whether this is explicit and intentional and deliberate or just sort of the background, the, the subconscious activity going on in all of our lives, our lives are spent in one way or another reacting to who we imagine God to be, anticipating his reactions, and trying to earn his approval, and then we'll be okay. If that's even possible, then we'll be okay. We are striving for what the Bible calls sonship, whether we're aware of it or not. That's what's out there in front of us, and we're trying desperately to get. We're striving for sonship. In fundamental ways, that's why we live the way we do. That's why we act the way we do and work in every part of our lives. It's it's what drives us, but that's all wrong, and it all stems from unbelief. The heart of a life like that is that the heart of it is the wrong belief that God doesn't love us. And that's a wrong belief. But that's the heart of unbelief that we all share that has 
passed on through the entire human race from one generation to the next. It's like that stereotype, the image perpetuated without change, that fundamental unbelief, that fundamental disbelief that God actually loves us. So we've got to do whatever we can to to make that right. But then Christmas happened, and that stereotype was broken. That mold was decisively broken with the humanity of Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And maybe I think there are some of the Christmas songs that we sing that sort of portray this as like this. We've been waiting for this for so long. It's been centuries. Please come. Please come. Won't you finally come? Maybe it felt like this was long overdue, but God knew the perfect moment. So in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God the Father, that's sort of implicit here, God the Father sent the Son. And that means everything that we see the Son doing, which is everything we see Jesus Christ doing, the Father sent him to do. The Father is the origin. The Son shows us who the Father is. The Son shows us what the Father wants. The Son shows us everything about the Father. He does what the Father wants, and that is good for us. So what does he do? It says in verse 4, continuing there, God sent forth his Son, born, and that word, um, I think it would be preferable if it were translated a little bit differently. I think it, it should be translated begotten, and I'll explain that in just a second. God sent forth his Son, begotten of a of woman, begotten under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the Son of God came into the world as a human, but not like other humans. In some sense, yes, a human. And in some sense, he broke the mold, and he's not like other humans. God's Son was begotten, not born of ordinary generation. Uh, This is actually an insight into Paul's doctrine of the virgin birth, which you have in some of the Gospels. Um, The virgin birth, he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus had no ordinary human generation by human parents procreating. Jesus was begotten as a special creation of God through the Virgin Mary. So Paul uses the regular word, born, of ordinary people, Every time he talks about ordinary people and their birth, he uses the regular word born in Greek, but he always uses, and he only uses this word begotten, this special word begotten to describe Jesus and the the beginning of his human life, his becoming a human. So God the Son broke the mold. He shattered the stereotype. With him, it isn't the same old human image perpetuated without change, the tired old cliché of inherited daddy issues. With Jesus, we have a new human image imprinted after his heavenly father. A new image, a new humanity. Hebrews chapter 1 says of of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So the son became a human and he became one under the law, Paul says, under the law, especially I think that, that highlights the idea of the condemnation of the law. The condemnation of God's law 
If you sin against God, that means death. That means death. It means separation from God. If you violate relationship with God, it means that relationship will be broken, and that means death. And so he came to face that condemnation. He came to face the death penalty for our sin against God. Even though he himself had never sinned against God, he never broke God's law. He was born, he came under the law, especially under the penalty of the law, so that we could be spared the penalty. And instead, actually, that we would receive his reward. Jesus fulfilled the law, yet he suffered the consequences as if he had broken it, so that we, through our union with him, as a gift of his grace, so that we might be treated as though we had actually kept God's law, which is laughable if you know me. He was innocent, and he took our guilt in order to acquit us. He was good, and he took what we deserve for our evil in order to give us what he deserved for his goodness. He was utterly for God. Sort of the essence of his goodness is that he was in perfect relationship with God. He was utterly for God. He gave his life to his Father. He lived for his Father. He was utterly for God, and he received what was coming to those who had set themselves against God as as God's enemies. So that people like us might receive what was coming to him. God sent his only begotten Son into our place so that we might be taken up into his place through this adoption as sons. What happened in the incarnation? It's an exchange. It's an exchange that takes place in the incarnation. Irenaeus sums it up perfectly. This is a quote that's at the front page of your your bulletin for you. He, He sums it up perfectly. He says, He became what we are in order to enable us to become what He is. So what happened in the incarnation? It's an exchange. What happened in the incarnation? It's also a sending out and a return. A sending out and a return. Karl Barth says that the Son of God went into the far country and man came home. That's what happened in the incarnation. He was sent to gather us to himself so that when he returned to God, his Father, we would be with him. Because he is God's true Son, and he came to unite himself to us, to take our place, and to give us his place, we become God's sons in Christ by adoption. We derive our sonship from Jesus himself, and only from Jesus. That's the only way that we have sonship, because we derive it from God's own son who came in the flesh. And I use that word sonship. The Bible uses it um, deliberately, right? I'm, I'm using that word sonship not to be exclusive of women and girls who might be daughters, right? Um, but because in the Bible it communicates something very specific and actually very, very inclusive. Not exclusive, but inclusive. In Christ, we're not just adopted into the place of generic children, right? Certainly not as second-class members of his family. You know, he's, he's the big brother, and we're all sort of second-class, barely in by the skin of our teeth, in some ways, that's true, but, um, but that's not what's being said here. This is the gospel. We have his own sonship, his own relationship to the Father. We're not just given our own. 
We're given his. We have Christ's own sonship as a gift of God's grace through our union with, with Jesus Christ. And so just as in that culture here that um, the Bible's written in, just as in that culture, it was the oldest son of the family who inherited everything that the father had. And if you were number two or if you were a girl, well, sorry, <laughs> the rules say it's just the oldest son who inherits everything. Just as in that culture, uh, the oldest son inherits everything the father has. So Jesus, who is God the son in the flesh, he's the, the only true inheritor of God. He's the only true heir. But by our adoption, as we come into his place, we become co-heirs with him. Co-heirs with Jesus. Because you are sons, Paul says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So John Calvin said, um, we're sons of God because we've, been, we, because we've received the same spirit as his only son. We've received his own spirit, the spirit of sonship. As adopted sons, all that the true son Jesus has is ours. Everything he has is ours. That's what he came to give us. That's what the Father sent him to do. To give us everything that belonged to him. So you are a full heir with Christ. An heir of what? You could say an heir of all things. An heir of everything that he had made. That's not as big as what this says. We're heirs of God. You, you've been given God. By God, through God. You've been given God. You look to the Father and you cry to him, Abba, Father. And you have him as your Father. Just as Jesus does, because you have Jesus' own spirit of sonship in you. You've been given everything. Everything that Jesus has is yours. Abba, that word, uh, I think it was uh, Aramaic, right? It's just being transliterated there for us. It, it's meant to represent all languages, not just Hebrew, not just the Greek that the New Testament was written in. It's, it's, it's a universal truth, right? All languages are represented here. Basically, little babies, one of the first things they always say, something like this, right? Christmas is for all peoples, all kinds of peoples. All peoples can enjoy this relationship with God. That's how inclusive it is. This relationship with God as Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what happens in the Incarnation. And it overturns all stereotypes of the broken humanity with daddy issues that's been perpetuated, that image been perpetuated in us, right? It overturns all that. Here in the Incarnation, the Father's love comes first. It's the very first thing of all things. The Father's love comes first. The Father's love saves the world. The Father's love is given freely up front to make you new in relationship with him. Life, life is not a matter of your striving to attain something that you don't have. Get that idea out of your heads, out of your hearts. That's not what life is. That's not life, that's death, and you can just leave off with it. Life is what happens when this father... This Father who's behind all things, this Father who's behind the coming of Jesus into the world, 
when this Father sets his love on you in Christ, which he has already done once and for all. And life is what happens when you've been given the Holy Spirit of Sonship to be able to relate to him as your Father. Just like Advent is the first season in the church calendar, the gospel comes to you as a new beginning. Your life has already begun again with God in Jesus Christ. The first word of your life with God is your Father's word. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That should be the first words you hear every morning. How, uh, how would that change the way that your days go? And the first thing, uh, a living newborn, you've been made new in Christ, new in this relationship through adoption as sons, given everything that Jesus himself has in relationship to the Father. The first thing that a living newborn does, anybody who's been in the hospital room for that, those terrifying moments, <laughs> cry. Cry out. And, uh, and so that's pictured for us here. The first application of the gospel, your first response is prayer. And it's, it's a prayer to God as your Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the essence of true prayer is found in these two words, our Father. Talking about the way that Jesus taught us to pray. The essence of true prayer is our Father. If you can say that from your heart, whatever your condition, our Father, in a sense, your prayer is already answered. That means your deepest prayers have already been answered because you can talk to him as your Father. Because of the incarnation of the Son of God, your prayer is already answered. Jesus invites you to it. When his disciples say, please teach us how to pray, we have no idea what we're doing. What really is prayer? And he says, yeah, pray with me like this, our Father. Jesus invites us to it. He welcomes us. He teaches us. He encourages us. Sometimes we need the encouragement. He commands us to pray this way. You are to pray our Father because that is true. God is your Father already because of Jesus. And if that changes your prayers, changes the way that you relate to God, then it changes absolutely everything in your whole life. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, which is fairly well-known, and this is another quote on the front cover of the bulletin, he says that you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption because that's what you have in the incarnation, our adoption as God's sons. So what do you make of the thought of being God's child, being God's son? What do you make of that thought? Is it a distant, obscure notion for you, hard to hold on to, hard to turn over in your head, unimportant? Or is it everything to you? Well, likely, if you're anything like me on a regular basis, it's somewhere in between, right? Um, but it should be everything. It can be everything. Your Heavenly Father loves you. He's the fountain of love. 
Love is a thing because he's the father and because he's behind everything. With him is true love, true intimacy. He's the one who holds this family together, and he is our shared inheritance in Christ. If Christ is an heir, an heir of God, and we along with him, then God is given to us, all of us, in the church to share as our inheritance with Jesus himself. Your heavenly Father loves you, and he'll never die. Earthly fathers pass away. Earthly fathers are distant. But your heavenly Father will never die, and he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You are not an orphan. doesn't matter who you are. You're not an orphan. Psalm 68, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Your heavenly Father loves you. He knows your pain. And true healing is found in the shadow of his wings. Your heavenly Father loves you. He wants you to flourish as his child, as his child, after his image. He wants that image more deeply imprinted on you. And so he disciplines you, which for, for no one is just everybody's first pleasant thought, right? But he disciplines you because he loves you. His discipline is perfectly timed and measured to make you ready for heaven. Nothing compares to the wealth of love that we have in this Father. George MacDonald <clears throat> uh, summed up the gospel. He says that the good news of Jesus was just the news of the thoughts and ways of the Father in the midst of his family. So now we have a lot to learn about this Father. We have a lot to learn from this Father, just like children with their earthly fathers, even a good earthly father, but children aren't born instinctively understanding all their Father's ways. Right? And sometimes it isn't the most pleasant experience for them maturing as children, even at the hands of a good father. But we have a lot to learn. But God, this is, this is one of the hardest things for us to learn about our father and what it means to be his sons. God didn't spare his own son, but he gave him over to the cross. That's the shape of God's love. He sent him for us. It's love but it meant the cross. And the scriptures say that Jesus Christ was perfected through that suffering. And as we find ourselves bearing our own crosses, which is exactly what we've been called to as sons and daughters of God, we, we learn that we are being brought up even as the Father brought up Jesus. You're being treated as sons. We're learning the true nature of love and that means self-sacrifice in very difficult circumstances a lot of the time. We're learning what it means to be sons of God like the incarnate son. And even though it's difficult, we're blessed to belong in his family, to be part of what he's doing in reconciling the world to himself even. To participate in his own ministry of bringing other children into the household. It says in uh, Matthew, Matthew's gospel records Jesus speaking the Beatitudes in chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, people who are out to bring reconciliation wherever they go. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And a lot of times, peacemaking is very difficult and requires a lot from us, a lot of sacrifice. But that's what it means to be imprinted with this image. 
this image of sonship, to be like Jesus as the Son of God, to be a peacemaker. And so John Calvin said, Christians ought to be a kind of men born to bear slanders and injuries, open to the malice, deceits, and mockeries of wicked men. They should have such complete spiritual composure that having received one offense, they should make ready for another, promising themselves throughout life nothing but the bearing of a perpetual cross. Why? Because this is how a son of God is in this world, giving his life to love sinners. That describes Jesus' life. That describes our lives. That describes this life in all of its hardships. But we know what happens to God's son after that. After death, after resurrection, the beloved Son of God is with the Father in glory forever. And because that describes Jesus as the Son, that describes you as sons. What happened in the incarnation? God has given himself to us. That's a big deal. And he's taken us to himself. What happened in the incarnation? Jesus revealed God to you as the Father who has always loved you. And he has reconciled you to God as Father through his sacrifice. What happened in the incarnation? We've been given the Son's own spirit of sonship. We've been made full members of God's own family. We've been made heirs of God himself forever. Nobody could take that away. That's what the Father sent the Son to do, and he did it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we um, marvel at your goodness, this, this word that comes to us, that you loved us before you created us, before we were born, long before any of us were, um, were alive. You loved us. You sent your Son to love us, to give yourself to us, to take us to yourself in a relationship that can never be threatened And so the first word over all of our lives is this fatherly love. We pray that you would help us to live that way, to live in responsive prayer to you, to live as your own son lived in this world, to give ourselves away for the sake of love, to see others come to know your great love for us all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.